Good morning. I'm happy to be here this morning to pick up in a certain sense where I left off yesterday. Uh, how many were not here yesterday? Shame on you. <laughs> I was just trying to find those people who didn't show up. That's No. Um, what I did yesterday was show you the conflict of two worldviews in a more conceptual way, in terms of ideas. And I thought this morning I would try and do the same thing, but now in a more pictorial kind of way, a spatial kind of way. And you'll see what I mean in a minute, but I think it is a way that you can really grab hold of what I was saying yesterday, because it gets visual things in your head that won't ever leave you ever again, I warn you. You will never watch the television ever again the same way. You will never read an article or listen to a political speech the same way. Well, um, I have on the screen there the title of this short talk called The Five Points of Pagan Oneism. I'm assuming that you all pretty much know the biblical Tourist worldview, which I presented yesterday. Obviously, we can always be refining the way we understand. But, you know, in order to solve a problem, you have to understand it. It's no use just working on superficial evidence. And some of you have told me that you believe that this particular message gets to the heart of things like nothing else. And I believe that too. Because I didn't invent it, so I don't want to take the credit for it. I just had the intelligence to read the Apostle Paul in Romans 1.25, where he's very clear on the subject. But I just invented the terms oneism and twoism because I'm not a deep thinker, and I thought I could simplify it as much as I could, and I'd be okay. So I want to present to you this morning what I call the five points of oneism. And uh, these five points all have one in them, so they're easy to remember. All is one. All humanity is one. All religions are one. Is this worldview starting to already take shape? <laughs> There's one problem and one solution. So those are the five points, and I will go into them in a little detail. But I told you that I would give to you a more spatial understanding of this oneism. And what I mean by that is that oneism can be very nicely represented as a circle. It's a circle of life in which everything is. Rocks, trees, human beings, and even God. But it's a system that can use spiritual language, you see, because it takes the God of the Bible, who is external to the circle, and puts God into the circle. And so it can sound sometimes quite spiritual, but what it has done is absolutely destroy the biblical understanding 
of who God is and what spirituality is. And here at Grace Cathedral in San Francisco, just up the road, I don't recommend going there, uh, they have a labyrinth. That's what's on the floor. And it is a circle. And you circle around, and you go through this labyrinth, and you eventually end up in the center, where, of course, you have this experience of gnosis, of understanding yourself, hopefully, as uh, the solution to all your problems, because you're divine. So that's being proposed now in a number of churches, including, by the way, evangelical churches. That's what I was saying yesterday. This worldview is slipping into evangelicalism in seemingly in an innocuous way because we want to know Jesus better. And if you go into the circle, you sort of focus on Jesus and yourself, and you know, you've presumably met Jesus. But uh, this is a perfectly pagan symbol. That's the labyrinth. And here is um, the description of it. The labyrinth is a mandala, a Hindu occult meditation process brought to the Western world by the grandfather of the New Age, Carl Jung. If you get hold of my new book, you'll find out a lot about Carl Jung, who I think is a crucial uh, player in how we have come where we are. True meditation occurs when the physical brain has been pacified, kept busy with a mantra. That's just a a statement you say over and over again, or a mandala, which is a circle, so that the spiritual mind is then free to wander on its own and discover new truths. You see that Gnostic business? Uh, The normal mind has to be uh, turned off so that you can have the spiritual mind. So the actual real being that God created has to be silenced in order that you get in touch with this spirituality. Um, Lauren Artress is a priestess in Grace Cathedral, um, an Anglican priest. And she is the one who de- de- developed the um, popularization of the labyrinth. And and look what she says. The labyrinth is a large, complex spiral circle, which is an ancient symbol for the Divine Mother, the God within, the Goddess, the Holy in all creation. Notice an an incorrect use of the term holy right there. (laughs) And the insistence on God as Mother, Now, God as mother, you see, has the idea of the divine womb out of which everything flows. So it is a circle of the womb of nature. It's a way of speaking about nature as divine. So anytime you see a reference to the goddess or God as mother, it's a a pagan reference to the world as divine. And that's uh, Lauren Artress. Um, who has popularized this throughout many churches throughout the world. Uh, 
So I'm suggesting to you that the circle is a perfect expression of this spirituality, this worldview. It's all-encompassing. It's seductive in that sense that it wants to draw you in and make you feel part of everything. This slide is totally meaningless in my lecture, but I liked it because um, it's used by the Wiccans. And I thought it was most appropriate that they had a circle with five points in it, since I have a lecture with five points. It's got nothing to do with the lecture. Well, it does, really, because it really does present the circle as the symbol of this kind of spirituality. So that's why it's there. The five points of the Iron Pentacle. Earth, air, fire, water, and spirit are the five elements in ancient paganism and now in witchcraft. So there's a circle that I now use to present to you oneism. I promised you a more spatial understanding of what I was saying yesterday, where I probably confused you totally. Now you have a visual uh, symbol on which you can focus your thinking about oneism. When I went to the Parliament of the World's Religions in 1993 in Chicago, I walked down this massive exhibition hall, and there were 125 different religions at this great conference, 8,000 delegates, and uh, I walked through the exhibition hall, and so many of these pagan religions had a circle as the symbolic focus of what they were saying. So circles are good. You came to church today on four of them. So the, Oh, five of them because you had to steer as well. So there's nothing wrong as such with circles but because God created the circle. But, you know, paganism has to use what God has made and misuse it. And that's the only thing it can do. So think of... Oneism as a circle into which everything goes. As I told you, earth, the universe, human beings, but also God. God is included in the circle. And um, the circle, of course, in Hinduism is called a mandala. They celebrate unity with the mandala, which is Sanskrit, meaning a circle or cosmogram. So you observe, you focus on a mandala, and it conveys the impression of wholeness, bringing peace and healing. See, there's the correct word usage of wholeness. Not holiness, but wholeness of feeling part of the whole. And that's the specific reason why in Hinduism there is great use of the circle, the mandala. Now, there are all kinds of circles. Here's another one you'll never forget. Um, this is actually the symbol of the Falun Gong in China, which is a uh, pagan group that greatly bothers the secularist communists, and they try and wipe out this system. But you'll notice there are a few sort of circles within the circle. You've got the yin and the yang, 
right? You know that from uh, that one, from Eastern religions. And, and that, of course, is a symbol for the joining of the opposites. You've got the dark and the light, uh, and they're juxtaposed in this notion of the joining of the opposites. Now, the other circle is a swastika. You thought Hitler invented the swastika. No way. Hitler had SS men who traveled the East looking for pagan symbols. <laughs> and uh, one of them that he found was the swastika. And uh, the swastika is derived from, from the Sanskrit, meaning uh, being fortunate. So the circle goes around the shapes of the arms of this form express the notion of continuous fortune. And his proof that this is ancient, this is an ancient statue of the Buddha, and on his chest is a swastika. It's a form of the circle. There are many circles being used in paganism. The Hindu system of chakra meditation is based on the idea that there are seven circles of energy within the body, beginning with the lowest form in the pelvic region. And as you meditate upon these points of energy, you rise in your spirit, finally, to the top circle, which is just above the head. And then you have reached gnosis once more. You've reached enlightenment. More circles. I'm driving you crazy. I told you I would give you a visual <laughs> account of, um, of paganism, and so I'm now giving you all kinds of circles. This is the Tibetan and Hindu wheel of life. There's the Aztec wheel. There's the Sufi dancing circle. Remember um, that movie that had the, the dancing dervishes? Uh, and that's, of course, a Muslim form of this kind of paganism, this oneist paganism the, there are certain Muslims who decided that this notion of a singularity of God outside, we couldn't get in touch with him. And so they decided to reinterpret existence and Islam by saying that all is God. And so, yeah, God, God is great and God is everything else, but we're inside God. And so the dancing then has to do with or the whirling dervishes has to do with the development of a sort of altered state of consciousness. The longer you dance and circle around, you lose any sense of normality, and uh, sure enough, you enter states of enlightenment. And all these methods really have uh, ways of getting into altered states of consciousness, of s silencing the mind, and uh, aboriginal dreaming 
uh, also is actual dancing in a circle. Stonehenge is a big circle, remember that? Uh, the American Indian medicine wheel. Here's a fun one, because I'm a New Testament scholar and I love ancient Greek. And this comes from uh, first century Egypt. And in the middle, ento pass, uh, all is one. Al Gore did not invent the Ouroboros. He did invent the internet, but not this. Um, the Ouroboros is the serpent eating its tail. But you notice that forms a circle, so it's endless. It sheds its skin, produces a new skin, and life goes on uh, like that. And it's an expression of all is one. Common in Hinduism, Gnosticism, Norse mythology. And here's proof of this, I think. Yeah, there's, there's a form of the Ouroboros in the Middle Ages. So this kind of thinking is not new. <laughs> it's found in ancient uh, Indian and, um, I said, uh, Egyptian and Gnostic thinking. Now in the Middle Ages, there's another one, pretty exotic. So, you have this love of the circle. You find it in an... I'm not sure where this group is going, but it was a political movement in the States called the Global Renaissance Alliance, and it played with the notion of the circle as a seductive idea for bringing the world together, of course. The power of the circle calls forth energies that represent unity, harmony, and wholeness for the planet. I'm glad I pointed out yesterday, Nate, the difference between holiness and wholeness. You remember that? Holiness makes distinctions, special things. Wholeness wants to include everything. And you see it being used in this kind of thinking. Uh, here's a, uh, an ex-bishop of the Episcopal Church, who I think is a thoroughgoing pagan. He probably would not appreciate it being described that way, but notice what he says. God is not an external supernatural being ruler, uh, ruling over humanity. God is rather the power of love which flows through each one of us, the source of life, of love, the ground of being. But life has taught us that theism, that's twoism, is dead. So you've got bishops telling the church that the very essence of Christianity is dead. God transcendent is a dead idea. Little wonder we're in such a mess, right? When the so-called... And this man was raised by an evangelical Presbyterian mother. So it's amazing where people can go. Oh, I get to my second point. Uh, all humanity is one. The first point was all is one, and you see that being proposed in these various usages of the circle. Now, the idea all humanity is one. 
This is a very intriguing notion, especially in our time of globalism, you know, bringing all the people together and how politicians go gaga when they hear these kinds of things because it's uh, a powerful notion if you can get on top of that movement. But the human beings are represented as microcosms and the whole is a macrocosm. So the large circle is made up of small circles, microcosms. and so really what that is saying, actually, is that the way of understanding uh, the whole of existence is actually in the microcosm. And where is the microcosm? It's you, and where do you find this truth inside of you? So it looks massive on the one hand, but it actually gets reduced right down to who you are. But you see how uh, intriguing, seductive, that notion of bringing all humans together on the basis of this oneist uh, unity. Harold Bloom, who is professor at Yale University of of Shakespeare, uh, became a oneist, raised as a Jew, and this is what he said in one of his books. When he came to understand, he had this experience of gnosis, I am uncreated as old as God. You see how this system takes the notion of God and the attributes of God and applies it to human beings. Very seductive, right? That you actually have the attributes of God. And we find this also in medieval Christian mystics like Master Eckhart, There is something in the soul that is uncreated and uncreatable. It's less obviously pagan, but everything in the human being is created. (laughs) Really, that's who we are. And we didn't exist prior to that, only in God's mind, but as existing, we've only ever existed as created. So that's a very subtle way of getting people to start thinking of themselves in different ways than the biblical way. Of course, as I said, this is a political movement too, and uh, I I think we will see the development of this kind of spirituality simply because of its intriguing possibilities in terms of geopolitics, where you find various statements uh, like the end of the nation state We're working for economic and cultural unity. The goal of human, the goal is the goal of human transformation and the production of a this-worldly utopia. People believe now, having believed the lie that they are divine, (laughs) that they can do what only God will do one day, and that is change this world into the beautiful world of the new heavens and the new earth. But how many people today believe that they can produce this human utopia? There are some of the movements uh, that I've collected together that are proposing a sort of 
global utopia. The Sophianic millennium is a theme that, oh, I forgot what time we're supposed to finish. Uh, ten, after. 10 after, so I got a little more time because I don't have to stay on all these things, but that was developed by radical feminists who await the appearance of Sophia, who will bring about this utopia. So ladies, we're counting on you. <laughs> I've really found this, that the future will be an eschatological Sodom. This is a good thing. We're seeing this happening right now, we know it. Obama was in Kenya yesterday trying to tell the Kenyans that they needed to open themselves up to home acceptance of homosexuality. And the president Kenyatta of Kenya said, no way. Of course, these people are primitive, right? They don't know anything. And uh, we have the big bucks to force them to accept this agenda. But uh, it's not always working. The men I was with in London two days ago it's funny, I told you yesterday where I was the day before. But there wasn't a white face in the house. <laughs> it was all Nigerian bishops. But uh, so solid and so determined to maintain the biblical view of marriage and of sexuality. So Africa is really showing us the way. And uh, we may not dismiss these people as primitive they do as much thinking as we do, and sometimes even more. So let's, let's pray for Africa. The bishops in Africa really are showing the way. They will have nothing to do with Lambeth Palace and the Archbishop of Canterbury and that whole liberal movement of worldwide Anglicanism, and I, I, I sense that they're in the process of developing a whole new Anglican communion, but they need our prayers. The Age of Aquarius was that song that I love to sing. This is the dawning of the age. <laughs> it was a great tune, and I had, no idea, <laughs> I had no idea what the words meant, so I merrily sang it, but... I later found out that the age of Aquarius is the age following the age of Pisces uh, in this sort of astrological uh, movement of history. And you have these long ages that follow one another. And uh, the age of Pisces, of course, they're 2,000 year periods and the age of Pisces is going away, the age of the fish. And what's coming in its place is the age of Aquarius, the goddess, the bringer of spiritual drink. So that's the way these people have think eschatologically. I'm sure this is not your eschatology, but they do have an eschatology that they try to develop. And so utopia is on the way. The Mayan calendar People are calling on about the deep shift. Brian McLaren of the Emergent Movement is deeply into this. Quantum spirituality. The 12th Imam is the eschatology of uh, Islam. The Buddhists have a um, messianic figure who apparently they believe is now already on the earth, disguised as a waiter in San Francisco or something like that. Um, 
The myth of ISIS is very interesting. Um, Hillary Clinton in the 90s had a counselor called Gene Houston. Did anyone hear of this? Gene Houston is a channeler. I've heard her speak. I know who she is. And she is calling for the return of the myth of ISIS. Even during the time she was in the White House, having Hillary Clinton get spiritually channeled to Eleanor Roosevelt, who was an equally odd woman. And, uh, and so Hillary is actually into this stuff, though she'll never say it. It was all in those emails. No. Uh, <laughs> but um, Jean Houston is a very powerful, evil woman, a channeler, and she believes that the future belongs to Isis, the goddess of magic and the underworld, no less. I'm sure she does. She can do anything she wants. Uh, the arrival of Kabbalah, that's a Jewish form of paganism, and this great emergence, that's another notion you find in the emergent movement, uh, the great emergence. And I once listened to Phyllis Tickle, she's a friend of Brian McLaren and part of this emergent movement, and she was lecturing to a group of uh, religion scholars at a conference where I was, and um, I asked her, she was talking about the big changes taking place, and I said, she didn't know who I was, and I just raised a hand and said, is this new spiritual phenomenon limited to the Christian church? And she says, not at all. So this is an interfaith movement. This emergent movement goes way beyond <laughs> evangelicalism. It still sort of claims some contact, but it's going far and far away. How many of these people, by the way, already accepted gay marriage? Um, Brian McLaren, Tony Campolo was just accepted gay marriage, uh, Phyllis Tickle is in a church where they have a, uh, a lesbian priest and all this kind of stuff. So no help from these people who are actually seduced by this vision of the coming of a new utopia. And of course, we're thankful to uh, Oprah for helping the General Hoi Polloi get in touch with this. Um, Eckhart Tolle took the name Eckhart from Meister Eckhart, the fellow I mentioned earlier, the German mystic. And uh, that's his uh, message now, a new earth. So this is very seductive, you see. We can bring the world together uh, because we have the spirituality to do it. Is it? Yes. Absolutely. Yeah, they're, they're, they're on the edges, yeah. Gorbachev, definitely. Um, he, um, at, the, at the year that he liberated the Soviet Union, he produced the, uh, a new version of Madame Blavatsky's uh, the, theosophical thinking. And both he 
and his wife, Risa, were theosophists. So this wasn't your typical Marxist communist. He was deep into this spiritual theosophy, which is an expression of this oneism. So there's much going on below the surface as well. But here's the hubris, the claim to end human depression and egotism and religious fear and conflict, solve international conflict and the ecological crisis, all by the transformation of human consciousness, which, you know, is this meditation process. Uh, my third point, all religions are one. This looks like a pizza, really, doesn't it? Uh, with a nice Italian sausage, and then the pieces carefully cut. I don't like it when people cut big pieces and leave little pieces for me, so I made sure that I had all those things perfectly measured out. Um, but this, of course, is part of this oneness movement, is the interfaith movement. And this is happening, of course, in all the mainline denominations, and all the other religions, actually, are very committed to this. I told you I attended the Parliament of the World's Religions and watched 8,000 delegates from 125 different religions join arms and dance around the ballroom floor singing, we are one. So we don't often see evidence of this because these religions are spread over the world, but really this is a massive movement. Um, and it's not new. I find this in, um, in a 12th century Sufi master. Sufism developed very strongly in the Middle Ages, actually. And uh, I find this a very interesting expression of it. My soul is a mosque for Muslims, a temple for Hindus, an altar for Zoroastrians, a church for Christians, a synagogue for Jews, and a pasture for gazelles. We have to have the ecological side in there too. Even in the Middle Ages, uh, you've got that, sort of a unity of nature. Now, of course, it's not new even for that period. When Paul went to Athens, what did he see? The same thing. It was a, it was a city given over to idols and to various altars to different gods, but they weren't fighting. So Christianity comes into the middle of that just the way we are in the middle of it right now. And I think it's important for us to remember that this interfaith is not new. It, it has a seductive power because it's saying, look how tolerant we are. Look at how our religion is willing to tolerate your religion. You know why? Because they're all honest. <laughs> There's nothing tolerant about them. They all understand that at the end of the day, they agree on the basic principles of oneism. So it's not tolerance. It's actually understanding more and more how unified they are. So this is uh, not new, and it is certainly exploding in our time. Here's a, a, a Buddhist leader who is in favor of what I'm just saying, it is in the area of personal religious awakening that transcends specific traditions where some Buddhists find the greatest chance for common ground with other traditions. 
Notice personal religious awakening. That is experience. Mystical experience. So all the Christians running after mystical experience, according to this fellow, will find unity with this man. And uh, that's the great danger of basing the Christian faith on mystical experiences. We're not dealing with sentimentality. And in my sermon later today, you will see how earthy and solid the Christian faith is. It's got nothing to do with mysticism as such. Sure, we can get involved with our whole soul in our worship of the Lord, and it's full of emotion and so on. But the basis of our faith is both theological and historical. And if we get rid of that, we've lost everything, it seems to me. Here's one of these um, interfaith uh, men, Wayne Teasdale, a Catholic monk, and the inventor of interspirituality. You know, the ecumenical movement used to be dialogue between churches when it first began off, and some people thought that this was great. But now we're into interspirituality. And so we use our spirituality and enjoy other people's spirituality. They're, they're, I'm not going to read through those, but just take a quick look at them. These are some of the movements committed to producing this interfaith reality. It's not an unimportant list, as you can see, but unless you are a speed reader, that's all you're going to see. And as a matter of fact, you know, as we move towards um, more global politics and economics, rest assured that religion will be carried along here. There's no way that people can come together without being religiously united. There's one problem. That's what those red lines represent. What's the problem? Well, it's not the human heart. We're perfectly fine. <laughs> I've gotten to know some of you, and I know that's not true. <laughs> and if you, if you want my email address to write to my wife to find out the same thing about me, you can have it. But here is, you know, Alice Bailey was a theosophist, and that was her conviction. The heart of humanity is sound. The one problem actually, is that we are maintaining distinctions, dividing up this wonderful circle. How can it ever be brought together if uh, you div divide things up and you make distinctions? So uh, here's a list of uh, the distinctions. And this utopia will not arrive until all these distinctions have been wiped out. Now, this is a statement of war, folks, because the Christian faith must maintain distinctions. This system must get rid of all distinctions. There's no living in peace with this kind of uh, ideology once, it's take, once it takes power. 
So they believe that there's no distinction between theism and monism, oneism or twoism, creator-creature distinction, God and man, what's that, animal-human. I could give examples of all these things, and I'm sure you could, the way we are reducing the distinctions between animal and human. Christ and Satan are simply different pictures of the same reality. Life and death is just the same, heaven and hell. Truth and falsehood. Remember I told you that paganism is the joining of the opposites. And all these opposites must be joined if we are to produce this oneist utopia. And there's the big problem, of course. Because it's all in the circle, evil is in the circle. And the only way to get rid of it is to relativize it. But you know what human beings do uh, who are evil, if they can relativize evil, they will take advantage of it. And I don't think that this promises a utopia. It's a dystopia that we will look forward to if we have uh, eliminated the, <laughs> the very notion of evil for the sake of human power. Sin and holiness have no meaning. The Bible and other scriptures well, actually, there's no such thing as sin anymore, and holiness has become wholeness, so the distinction between sin and holiness is gone. We need to read all the scriptures to get a full understanding of spirituality. Monotheism and polytheism are, are exactly the same at the end of the day. The traditional family and alternate families, no real distinctions. Parents and children, the state will soon take our children from us. Love and pornography. We are so pushing pornography that we don't know the difference between it and love. Monogamy and polygamy. We thought they were pretty much held in place until a couple of weeks ago, right? <laughs> when we simply blew out of the water any definition of what marriage is, and we will see polygamy as simply another expression. So there's no distinction. It's just another option. Of course, male and female has been under attack for a couple of generations. Ladies, be women <laughs> and accept it and enjoy it. Men, be men. I said yesterday that we don't have women preaching here. It's not because they can't do it, but because the Lord wants a statement to the public that there is such a thing as distinction. And I was thinking, because we're called to different roles. I'm not called to be a mother. I am called to protect my wife. And so there are these distinctions that uh, go along with this notion of who we are as male and female. But that has to go, as you know, in our modern world. So homosexuality and heterosexuality have been crushed. There's no distinction anymore. When I first typed that, I never thought I would actually see it encased in constitutional law. And I, I, I think that that is a major step in the direction of taking this culture where it will inevitably end up in a dystopia, a fearful, evil dystopia. 
unless the Lord comes and changes things. And we do hope, of course, that He will (laughs) come one day, definitively. In the meantime, we pray for a revival, of course. There's one solution. The one solution to my ending this lecture at Tempest 10 is that I be quick with the last point. But the one solution, as you can imagine, if um, all is one and that human beings represent the, um, the whole in a small form, then where do you go for the solution? Well, you go within. Remember Shirley MacLaine going within? We thought that was just peripheral stuff from the nuts in Hollywood, but uh, this has become a great search for people today in meditation, various forms of yoga. Some yoga is sort of clean somewhat, but I have people around me that feel you can never clean yoga from its Hindu relationships and that even when you claim that there's no religious aspect to it, you're sort of creating within yourself this notion that you're one with everything somehow. That seems to be the goal of Hindu. Yoga means yoked to God, actually. Yoga is a Sanskrit term, yoked to God. So, obviously, there's more going on. There's the word union with God. I'm just, oh, he, this is what, here's a Hindu Swami saying, we must consciously destroy the mind. I'm always suspicious of religions that want to destroy the mind. The mind is the greatest thing we have. <laughs> it, it, it's such a Gnostic notion to want to destroy the creation. You know, God created the world, he created the mind, and it's the most incredible thing we have. And surely this shows that this kind of religion is bogus. But here it is. Your intellect, keep your intellect at a respectable distance when you study mythology. That which separates you from God is the mind. So stop thinking. I hope your kids don't find this truth and then tell you that uh, they didn't do their homework because they're far superior to you. You wanted them to think, and they know that they shouldn't think. Listen to your feeling. Words are the least reliable purveyors of truth. A mantra is a Sanskrit word. You know, people doing the mantras over and over again. It comes from two Sanskrit words, to think and to be liberated from. So a mantra is a way to stop you from thinking. And that's, of course, what I've been saying all along, the conjunctio positorum, the joining of the opposites. And I mentioned, now you have it uh, printed in front of you, that Hindu notion of Advaita, not to. I I discovered that after I'd come up with the terms oneism and twoism, so you can imagine I jumped over the moon to discover that the essence of Hinduism is not two. So we're on a good track in thinking that um, there is a conflict here between two systems, (laughs) a system of 
oneism and a system of twoism, and they are in radical conflict. I, I wanted to read this, but I don't have time, so I'm going to jump it. And I'm going to jump that. These are all the visions. Oh dear. Um, there are only two religions, there are two religions, Paganus and Alienus, esoteric and exoteric. Some people say there's only one religion, and this is just a screen to show you that actually throughout time we've always talked about two religions. One turns within, the other goes without, and that's precisely what oneism and twoism are. But you're not going to be able to read all this because I don't have time. But there are examples of it. All is two, not one. I promised you a visual understanding. I've shown you the circle. Come on. Oh, wrong one. Christians have two circles. The circle of creation and the circle of God. And they are in relationship but never confused. And so as you present the Christian faith, this is where you need to begin in our day and age in showing people that there are two possibilities and that you're not an idiot or bigoted or foolish for holding one worldview over against the other. Both are timeless and uh, you must get people to think. And in my sermon this morning, I want, you to, I want to show how the gospel is central to a tourist system. Oh, I'm not going to show you that. All is two because God reconciled us to himself. The creator becomes the creature and we are joined back to God without becoming divine, united to our creator and savior.